Welcome to episode three of Collide. Collide is produced at and by the Imaging Research Center at UMBC, a public research university at the edge of Baltimore. I'm your host, Lee Boot, director of the IRC. As we have been in all episodes of Collide, I'm joined here by assistant producer Anna Kroll. Hi, Anna. Hello. Anna, to date, I've introduced you as an assistant producer, which you are. But I want listeners to know why your contributions are valuable. I want them to know a little bit more about you. Would you mind? I'm a graduate research assistant here at the IRC because I'm um, a master's student in the Intermedia and Digital Art program. I have a background in performance. I build websites. I'm an avid consumer of YouTube. I'm a digital native. <laughs> I've been making and teaching digital media for over 30 years, and I've learned a lot from those like yourself who have grown up in the digital world, but who also use it for their own purposes. So I'm grateful that you're willing to join us as assistant producer. Thanks. So in this episode, which we're calling Water, Spaghetti, and Infographics, we're joined by someone who also spends a lot of time thinking about media systems, visualization, and other things in which we are interested. Today, we are lucky to have with us Rebecca Edelman, Professor and Chair of Media and Communication Studies here at UMBC. Rebecca thinks, writes, and teaches about media visualization and, in particular, the role of imagery and representation in geopolitical conflict and militarized violence. Her most recent books are Figuring Violence, Affective Investments in Perpetual War, and the co-edited anthology Remote Warfare, New Cultures of Violence. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So excited to have you on because you have this overview of media and communication studies and visualization as a scholar and chair of the department. So I know you have your own specific research, but you also have this wider scope um, that we're very interested in. I imagine you might share a goal with this podcast. We want to help folks gain a better sense of how central media and visualization are to nearly everything we do. My experience is that people might criticize or hail this or that feature of one product or another, but beyond that, it's like asking a fish to think about water, to ask people to think about media. So I just want to ask you, what's your experience in the classroom and also out in the world talking to people about this? I think this is a really great question, and you're absolutely right that we share a lot of uh, common preoccupations, your, your podcast and me. Um, I think that, you know, what you said is is pretty spot on in terms of, you know, in, in many ways at this point, um, you know, media criticism in, in sort of a popular sense just kind of comes down to I like this or I don't like that. I want this or I don't want that. And I think that that's largely because we're encouraged to think of ourselves as consumers. And, and more than that, increasingly, and this is to do with the media landscape we inhabit, um, the main form of recognition that we get is as consumers, right? So like your content gets personalized based on what you shop for. You develop almost a kind of intimacy with 
the media that you consume, right? So you're invited to think about yourself as a consumer and you're kind of hailed as a consumer. So I think that's part of what contributes to that, that sort of approach. But I also really love this idea of like the fish in, in water. Um, it's a great metaphor. I, I think in large part because these platforms, these technologies, these devices really do become our ecosystem, right? Like people talk about the Apple ecosystem and that metaphor is also really curious to me too because it's so animate, right? It, and it, it, it's so vital in its way. Um, and it's just very, diff- I think it's very difficult to think around these technologies, right? Um, especially now when we're living so much of our lives through the screens. One of the ways that I kind of encounter this, this kind of inability or this sort of struggle to think past um, or around the technology is when I teach on surveillance. Just this past semester, um, I've been teaching the, a class called Cultures of Surveillance. And we, we kept encountering what I've increasingly come to think of as these like, yeah, but moments, right, where our discussions run aground. Everyone sort of objects to surveillance um, and maybe spends a lot of their time feeling creeped out once they start to think about how surveilled they are by their devices, um, but sort of come to the conclusion that like, well, there's nothing we can do about it, right? Like, yeah, this makes me uncomfortable, but it's so ingrained that there's nothing I can do or like, yeah, this makes me uncomfortable, but it also does kind of make my life easier because I like that Google Maps will tell me like the quickest way to get where I'm going. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about this kind of yeah, but construction is that it's coming from people who are sort of disposed to be critical of the technology, right? It's really different than the other thing that makes me angry when I'm teaching surveillance, which is surveillance doesn't matter because I have nothing to hide. That makes me want to lose my mind. Um, But this in some ways is even harder to stomach because it's like people are saying like, yeah, this is a problem, but there's nothing we can do about it or nothing that we even want to do. And I think that's one of the things that's so tricky because this whole ecosystem of constant surveillance Uh, in the name of selling us stuff, um, even more than in the name of like security, really just defangs criticism. It makes it impossible to think otherwise. There's this consumerist attitude that you identify that says the next thing that comes down the pike is simply offered me. I had no say in how it would be constructed, even what it's for. You have all these amazing capacities, but sort of how much is it actually improving your life? That kind of critical stance is something that a university, both in what we think about and study and in what we try to build, can kind of address. But you really have to shuck the consumerist construction. You really have to say, oh, well, we could just kind of build something that does it completely differently. Or we could imagine something that comes at it from a different standpoint. But if you're not doing what you're doing or what I'm doing, why would you think that way? I'm going to venture a somewhat unpopular opinion. Uh, so so hold on to your hats, I guess. Um, so typically, like one of the things that sort of universities have, I guess, posited as an alternative to this is this like media literacy model. And I have a lot of concerns about the media literacy model, even as like our intro class is called media literacy. And I think it's a really important class and it's great. And everyone who's listening should come to UMBC and take it. Um, I think that the, the, the media literacy model in and of itself kind of risks 
replicating that consumerist mindset. It was sort of developed at a time when the media landscape was really different, right? And so the media literacy model basically says, like, if, if only you knew better, right, you would act differently. Right. If only you knew better, you'd watch the news. If people watch the news anymore, you'd you'd consume the news differently. Um, and it really does kind of rely on this like rational consumer model. But it's developed at a time when the media landscape was really different. And now we have devices that are really designed to like rewire our brains. Um, and we have we kind of create these little media universes for ourselves that operate not just at the level of reason, but also emotion. Right. And it's it's going to be very hard to out reason people who believe what they're watching is fake news. It's an entirely different epistemology. Right. I'll I'll use that word on the podcast because I'm sure people definitely want to hear about epistemology, but it requires a little bit of a shift in in perspective. But apart from a class like media literacy or the the other places like your center or the the places where that kind of work is happening, there isn't a lot of invitation or a lot of space to be to be critical in a way that is constructive, right? There's plenty of space to say the other guy's an idiot, right? There's plenty of space to say the other guy is not telling the truth or is a purveyor of fake news, but there's not a whole lot of space to be thoughtful and critical. The agency of the consumer is really limited, right? Because when you're a consumer, you're simply choosing from an array of options that have been put before you. Um, and you're sort of nudged in one direction or another to like one thing or another. But it's a pretty limited form of agency. And it also makes it harder to think about responsibility. Um, and that's one of the things I talk about sometimes when I talk about media literacy, particularly in the consumption of images of war or images of, of militarized violence the media literacy model is inadequate because it might encourage us to be, you know, sort of skeptical of a particular news source or critical of the way that like a government is say deploying certain images, but it, it makes it much harder to think about all the ways that we ourselves are kind of in enmeshed in the perpetration of militarized violence, right? It, it makes it seem like media is something that just happens to us. I'm fascinated by this inevitability, this consumerist bit about how the gadgets and the software and the apps and so on are just things we get from industry. We don't really have a lot of say in what kind of problems we're trying to solve with those things. What's your take on that? I mean, as again, a digital native, different generation than me, do you feel like you have any agency in the gadgets, the setup, the framing, the systems? I mean, in short, not really. I feel like many of these companies would say that, that they are giving the users what they want via users' interactions, but that's not the same thing as actively asking for something that you want. And often features come out that I feel like I didn't ask for is not the thing that I would have asked for from a company and then the sense of, with, well, if it exists, I'll use it. It's much more about your reaction versus your desire. Rebecca talks about a sense in her surveillance class of resignation to it happening. If someone was like, would you trade giving all this information for this feature? Probably people would say no, but instead it's happened. And now we're like, well, I liked the features. I've been using the features that came out, so I guess I don't... <laughs> My conversation with Rebecca Edelman then turned to discussing her ideas about visualization, 
something our listeners know to be a keen interest of those of us producing the Collide podcast. I want to talk about your 2018 article, One Apostate Run Over, Hundreds Repented, Excess, Unthinkability, and Infographics from the War with ISIS. I just love that title. I think there's, I think there's a sardonic humor <laughs> embedded in it um, that I really appreciate because it's a sticky issue. And in that article, you give sort of a primer on visualization, including its history. I, I just love that you do that. In that article, you highlight a debacle from over 10 years ago. At that time, the now-retired Army General Stanley McChrystal, who was leading NATO forces in the war in Afghanistan, used this remarkable PowerPoint slide during a press conference. It was so full of lines and arrows and words and stuff that it looked like a plate of spaghetti. The New York Times made fun of it. Everyone made fun of it. He was trying to express the full complexity of the war, and it didn't go well. As a person who studies visual culture and, and militarized violence, that spaghetti diagram um, has also been like really compelling to me. And in part, I, I appreciate it um, because I think it illustrates in many ways like better than a, a, an egghead professor ever could right, the limits of what visualization can do. Um, and it sort of shows the urge behind data visualization taken to, in some ways it's logical, but ultimately like absurd end, right? This idea that if you just cram enough information onto a single slide, color code it, and you put some arrows, like suddenly everything's gonna make sense. It highlights our expectations, right? Or it illuminates our expectations for this kind of technology. When I wrote this article about uh, infographics that ISIS was producing, it just sort of happened. It was something I was thinking about, and someone invited me to write something for a special issue on media produced by ISIS that was non-spectacular. So they specifically didn't want another kind of hot take on beheading videos. And I was like, well, let's talk about infographics. And they were like, really? Um, and so what, what was one of the things that was happening at this time is that ISIS started producing infographics, right? Production values, a little mixed, but like clearly recognizable as infographics. I didn't know that in 2014, ISIS produced an annual report and then, of course, the infographics. But go on. Yeah, no. And I mean, who would have thought, right? So I was interested in the infographics that ISIS is producing themselves. I'm interested in the sort of the popular and media response to them, which is sort of like dismissive or bemused or just kind of like non-comprehending. Um, a beheading video is is incomprehensible in, in one way, right? Because it's just so grisly. Um, but these, like, I was just kind of reading all these news accounts that were kind of struggling to make sense of the fact that ISIS is producing infographics and annual reports, right? Which just is so much the language of, like, Western modernity and, and capitalism. And I argue that part of the reason that no one knew quite what to do with these or their sort of shrugging dismissal or their, their mockery of them is that it really contradicted our understandings of ISIS as this kind of pre-modern, irrational organization or, or network. And the fact that like, oh, they can do this too, like it just couldn't be squared. But that it also seemed really threatening, right? That like they were able to marshal these technologies. Because the other thing that's happening is that Western media outlets are producing infographics by the dozens trying to make sense of the war in Syria, right? So this is like a, a 
really tricky conflict to report about. It's a tricky conflict to know. It's a tricky, tricky conflict to understand. Um, and so there's just this turn toward infographics, right? And this impulse to say like this diagram, this map, this time-lapse visualization is going to help you understand in a way that words couldn't. Like the widespread quality of that impulse was also really, um, was also really interesting to me. Just to note, We've put a link to the New York Times article on General Stanley McChrystal's infamous diagram about the war in Afghanistan on our website, irc.umbc.edu slash collide, K-A-L-E-I-D. In your view, how do these textures and styles of infographics themselves frame information before we even think about the information itself? Well, I think, you know, in, in some ways, I, I might even go back to this question of consumption. Um, so there are people whose job it is to design information. And for those people, typically, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, right? But but when you when your first thought to when you look at information is to think of it as a design problem, right, then your concern will be aesthetic, right? And infographics, like, you know, many of the infographics that are produced in major news outlets, they're re they look really good, right? So, um, and of course, you make the argument that design is meant to be um, efficient, or design is meant to be effective, or design is meant to kind of get a job done, and and that that's what those that's what informs those principles. But they're also meant to be visually appealing, and I think that we might it might be worth thinking about the pleasures of consuming infographics, um, and those pleasures I think are aesthetic, but they're also again, sort of epistemological or intellectual, they give you this sense, this like feeling of mastery. There's a difference between like drawing a map to try to figure out which well in the town is giving everyone cholera and then attempting to kind of use an infographic to map a complex and layered phenomenon, like for example, the war in Syria, right? Or even COVID. And so um, there's this promise that if you have a slick enough visualization and enough data, you're going to crack the whole thing wide open, right? And so this just drives a hunger for like more data and more visualization. This appetite is endlessly recursive, but you lose sight of everything that gets crowded to the margins, right? And that might be the, the sort of human experience or the subjective experience or the thing that can't be the thing that can't be quantified. In that same article, you talk about how something might just be irreducible, not suitable for representation in a visualization. There are certain things that we shouldn't even maybe try to visualize. So I want to know a little bit more about what you think the limits of visualization are to actually represent these sticky problems like militarized violence or COVID. Sure, that's a that's a really excellent question. I think there's two problems that are separate but often converge, right? And the one problem, and I know you talk a lot about this in your lab and your own work, the one problem is just the limits of what can be quantified, right? Or the limits of what data can contain. This reduction of experience to ones and zeros is necessarily a reduction, right? There's affordances that come with that, right? We always talk in media studies about affordances and limitations. Like there's affordances, such as a certain kind of efficiency um, in the presentation of information, but there's just inherently limitations, right? There are some things that, that just don't necessarily lend themselves to that kind of repackaging. So there's a question of like the limits of the quantitative, 
But there's also then the question of like the limits of the visual, right? And are there, you're saying, are there some things like where's the boundary? Are there some things um, that are sort of not suitable for representation or just inherently incompatible with representation? I think, you know, there, there's a long debate in um, trauma studies, for example, about this question of representability and unrepresentability that, that comes out of actually the aftermath of the Holocaust. And there's this debate about whether that experience can or should be represented, right? And this is an, this is an aesthetic question, but it's also for many people a methodological question, but also like an ethical question. Should this event be protected, right, from the inevitable violence of someone trying to represent it? There's concerns about desensitization. There's concerns about fidelity to the experience, right? There's concerns about um, who creates these representations, who's authorized to create these representations. So we could be here for weeks talking about this. There's a theorist, a philosopher uh, named, named Jacques Rancière, and, and he makes the argument that it's not that particular events have a quality that makes them representable or not representable. He says it's rather about the conditions in which we try to represent them. That's the more urgent question. And, and one of the things that I'm interested in is, is our expectations for visualization, right? Our beliefs about what visualization can do um, and the impulse to turn toward vis visualization at certain moments of crisis, right? Like that impulse is really curious to me because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that instinct seems really ubiquitous. You know, I talk again about the war in Syria that like, it's just atrocity photo after atrocity photo. And like every time there was a new atrocity photo, people would be like, yeah, this is the one, right? Like this is the photo that's gonna make people care. Right. And it's true of any sort of humanitarian crisis. Right. It's no, 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 no. This is the photo. No, this is the photo. No, no. That guy. No, we didn't care about that kid. But this kid. Right. Like this starving kid, this dead kid, this bloodied kid is going to be the one that really makes people care about this. Right. That if you give them enough information, it's going to kind of tip them over into feeling or action. And I just am not sure it works that way. I wish it did. Um, but I think we have a lot of evidence that it doesn't. You know, the idea that our impulse is to visualize is is also a point of criticism, right? Maybe the inclination to try to know and control and appreciate and change, et cetera, through a process of communication like that is itself something that needs to really be unpacked. What are we trying to do there? We take it for granted. Yeah. We take it for granted. I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast today to have you help us think about these things in these ways that you write about. I'm, I'm very grateful for your time here today. Oh, it was so much my pleasure. This was a, this was a great conversation and really um, thought provoking questions. I will stop talking now, but I can guarantee I will continue thinking about these uh, for, for many, many days to come. So thank you so much. I am really happy to be involved in anything the IRC is doing. So Anna, you and I have both listened to this interview and the truly interesting questions she brings up about the impulse to visualize and the problems we hope to solve that way. There's a lot to think about here. But I want to go back to the infamous McChrystal diagram, which we discussed, because it seemed to me that you had an interesting take on it as well. Would you share those thoughts with listeners? 
When I see Stanley's graph, I feel empathy for him because he realized there's no simple solution because it's incredibly, it is truly all these chains of cause and effect and relationship. As a communicative tool, yeah, what it communicated was that the issue is incredibly complicated. But I guess I also imagine someone sitting down and really earnestly trying to create that chart. And and that doesn't seem like an oversimplification of something. That seems like someone really trying to to know and understand something. You also can write a paper about it or really do that as a form of research, but also you can make a chart of it and that chart can look totally crazy because the issue can be totally complicated, which is scary to people. I'm sure part of why it was considered not useful is because it is much harder to come up with a solution or like a an action step when you're like, whoa, this is so complicated. <laughs> Like for him, it's not just religious extremism. It's not just whatever the economic situation is. It's not just previous U.S. military interventions and the ways that has affected the climate. You know, it's all of these things. Those are not in isolation to each other. They've all intersected. This concept of intersectionality is really starting to, you know, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but I do think that has really caused people to think more about the way that things are interconnected and that it is this idea of interrelatedness or like multiple factors uh, contributing to something is what results in this, this chart, this like uh, spaghetti chart. The question of how we can access, work, and communicate complexity using media has really emerged as a central theme of Collide thus far, to be sure. Before we leave you, we want to remind you that we are asking you to help us give the digital media information computing data sphere a better name. As we've said, we're thinking of it as a new element like air, water, fire, or earth, only human-made. And like air or fire, we're hoping for one-syllable answers. Okay, maybe two-ish, like ocean. Something simple to spite its complexity. Go to our website, irc.umbc.edu slash collide, spelled K-A-L-E-I-D, and hit the big red button to record your voice sharing your idea for what we should name the Digital Media Information Computing Data Sphere. And while you're there, share some other thoughts you might have about the Digital Media Information Computing Data Sphere. What do you love? What do you hate? What are you concerned about? What are you hopeful about? What do you want to understand better? What do you imagine could make these systems better? Collide is made possible by UMBC with production help from Jason Charney, Lindsay Dandelette, Danielle D'Amico, Anna Kroll, and Amelia Voos. The views expressed on Collide are not necessarily those of the students, faculty, and staff of the IRC or of UMBC, but rather are my own, assistant producer Anna Kroll's, or those of our guests. So thanks for listening, and please join us for episode four of Collide.